Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. In March of 2022, I had the great privilege of traveling to Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee with Stanford professor Claiborne Carson, who is the world's top expert on Dr. Martin Luther King. I was finishing my thesis on women in the civil rights movement, and I was expecting to learn things on site in the Deep South that I hadn't been able to learn from books. And that expectation was exceeded in every way. And I highly recommend to listeners to take your family and friends and make a trip to the South to tour the civil rights sites. And especially I was deeply, really profoundly moved by the Legacy Museum, which is a new museum in Montgomery, Alabama. It was really an essential life-changing experience. And I believe every American should go there and have that experience at the Legacy Museum. Um, That's just an aside, though. What I wasn't expecting from my trip and what will be the subject of today's episode is that I would meet new friends in my travel group when I went on that trip. Um, I did meet amazing friends, and two of those friends turned out to be not just friends, but heroes for me. I first talked with Nanette Gartrell and Dee Mossbacher toward the end of our trip when we realized that we had a mutual interest in women's studies and women's issues, and we kind of shared a common frustration that women weren't being featured and foregrounded more in the curriculum of the study trip. So after that first conversation, um, I went back to my hotel room and I, I looked up Nanette Gartrell and Dee Mossbacher, and I found that they are luminaries in their respective fields in their careers. They have been pioneers in gay rights activism for decades. And if they hadn't been so warm and approachable when I met them in person, I definitely would have been too starstruck to talk to them. So I'm truly honored to have Nanette Gartrell and Dee Mossbacher with us on the podcast today. Welcome, Nanette and Dee. Hey, Amy. Hi, it's Nanette. I'm, we're very happy to be here. So excited to have you. One thing that I sometimes ask my guests on the podcast is, what interested you in doing an episode on Breaking Down Patriarchy? Well, I've loved listening to the podcast, Amy. I am so impressed with what you've put together. And what you have created in Breaking Down Patriarchy is really the course I wish had been required at Stanford in 1967 when we were all required to take what was called Western civilization. I would, this, this course would have resonated with me so much more than mm. what, what I experienced in Western civilization. And I'm re- really so impressed with all that you've synthesized and put together so that you can take readers along with you as you explore women's history in the parts of the world in which you focus, which is just tremendous. And also, the other reason I am, was highly motivated to, uh, to, to say yes when you asked is that I was honored to have been given the opportunity to read your master's thesis on the women of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee during the mm-hmm. Civil Rights Movement, which I thought was profoundly wise, mm-hmm. um, brilliantly put together, and I hope it's going to be published so that you can share it with everyone because you did such a fantastic job on it. Oh, thank you. Oh, my goodness. I'm so honored. Thank you so much, Nanette. And it meant so much that you read it. It's not short. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just so thrilled and grateful. Thank you for those kind words. 
You're welcome. Amy, as you know, we met on the Stanford Civil Rights Tour, and I feel incredibly fortunate about that. I'm inspired by your deep research into the intersection of race, class, gender, and sexual orientation. And you broadcast your knowledge out to everybody, which is so cool. It's it's so wonderful on these on these podcasts. It's just such a fabulous learning experience. And I love how generous you are to share your knowledge with so many people. And I feel very, very lucky to be included um, as as one of your interviews. Oh, well, thank you so much. That just that means the world to me. Thank you. Dee. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been just, like I said, an honor and such a privilege to get to know you more and um, to become friends and to learn about the amazing lives that you've led. And I want to highlight both of your personal stories and what you've done in your career. Um, but to keep things organized, because there are three of us, we'll, we'll go one at a time. And I'll start out by reading um, Nanette Gartrell's bio first, and then maybe we'll dive into your story, Nanette, if that sounds good. That sounds great. Okay, so I'll I'll just read just a short paragraph that doesn't even begin to cover all of your accomplishments, but I'll we'll start we'll start there. Nanette Catherine Gartrell was born on June twenty eighth, a, a momentous day will turn out to be a momentous day, right? June twenty eighth, nineteen forty nine, in Santa Barbara, California. She attended Stanford University and graduated with a bachelor's degree in human biology in nineteen seventy two. She earned a medical degree from the University of California, Davis, and completed her residency training at Harvard Medical School's Massachusetts Mental Health Center. She was an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard until 1987, and then an associate clinical professor at UCSF until 2011. From 2009 until now, she has been a visiting distinguished scholar at the Williams Institute, which is a research center at UCLA that focuses on sexual orientation and gender identity law and public policy, and as a guest appointee at the University of Amsterdam. Her papers are archived at the Sophia Smith Collection at Smith College, and her oral histories are included in the Pioneering Women Collection at Stanford University. So again, Nanette, such an impressive bio, such an amazing life that you've lived. And I'm really excited to have you tell us a little bit more about what that felt like to, <laughs> to go from beginning to end. So if you can start with your background, where you grew up and your family and education, just help us get to know you a little bit. Sure. I was born and raised in Santa Barbara, California, USA. Uh, I was the oldest of three children. Sadly, both of my parents suffered from significant mental illness, which created major emotional struggles for all of us and also economic hardship for our family as a result. Um, although my parents hoped that I would stay in Santa Barbara to take care of them and be close to them. It had already been a crushing responsibility when I was a teenager. And I felt that really in order to survive, I needed to move out and be in another city once I finished high school. So I realized, I think I was about 11 years old, that my ticket out of there was to be very successful academically and ultimately earn a full academic scholarship to college in another city. And 
I set my sights on Stanford and I worked very hard and, and got in. Amazing. Wow. So when you got to Stanford, did you know what you wanted to study already? And you said, did, were you there on scholarship? Did you have to work while you were in school? What did, what was that chapter like? Well, I think neither I nor my parents at the time were politically conservative. I mean, many people were politically conservative back then, but um, neither I nor they could have predicted my future career path when they dropped me off to begin my pre-med studies uh, in the fall of 1967. However, within a couple months, I fell in love with a woman. I came out as lesbian and I ended up face-to-face with a conflict between my sexual orientation, my sexual identity, and the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the handbook of diagnoses that all mental health professionals use, and it's abbreviated DSM. I was aiming for a career as a psychiatrist, probably not surprisingly, having grown up in a family with some significant Uh, mental illness because I wanted to understand it better. But according to the DSM, I was mentally ill. According to our legal system, I was a criminal. And according to the faith community, a sinner. Yet somehow, there I was at 18 years of age, I was convinced that these entities had it all wrong, and I set out to do something about it. So I was there on a full academic scholarship. I did have to work as well to have spending money, of course. And I, after coming out, I, I went to the medical library and I wanted to see what I could find about LGBTQ people. And there was really practically nothing there that was not focused on sexual minority people who were in psychiatric hospitals or prisons. Um, And finding that out gave me a mission. Uh, I decided that I would become a researcher with a goal of learning how to conduct scientific investigations that would provide a a much more accurate picture of LGBTQ people than than observations of psychiatric inpatients or prison inmates who were forced into experiments that were uh, attempting to change their sexual orientation to heterosexual. And I was very fortunate that human biology was created as an undergraduate major in 1970, especially because I hadn't been able to decide what to major in. And I made it all the way to my senior year without a major, and they didn't catch me. (laughs) And one of the requirements was to conduct an internship under a faculty member. And I approached uh, Dr. Keith Brody, who was then an assistant professor of psychiatry, who had recently been hired from NIH, National Institutes of Health, to see if he would be willing to have me as a student working under him. Um, He agreed, and he became my mentor, and he began to teach me how to do research. Little did I know then that he would later become president of the American Psychiatric Association and then later still president of Duke University. But one of the things that was a, a huge surprise was that he was delighted to find out that I was a lesbian who wanted to do research on LGBTQ people. It, it, this was, this was a, an era at Stanford where people weren't talking about it very much, and the way they were talking about it was in quite homophobic terms. So in 1971, under his auspices, I, I 
designed my first research project, which was a survey of psychiatrists' attitudes concerning lesbianism, and then basically launched from there my research career. That's incredible. I'm just astounded that you had the confidence, first of all, to be able to come out as soon as you realized that you were a lesbian in that environment. It was, you know, between 67 and 72, I guess. I, tell me a little bit more about that, Nanette, and the homophobia that you encountered at Stanford and as you were, you know, heading into grad school. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. Um, the process of coming out for me was is very similar to that of many people, which was figuring out who it was safe to tell first, telling those people, going through the process of dealing with their reactions, some of which were okay, some were, were shocked, some, uh, well, I mean, as the more more people I told, the more I heard things like, well, you just couldn't possibly know if you haven't had a relationship with a man that you are lesbian. And from my perspective, I had known that I was attracted to girls when I was, I mean, I, I knew I was lesbian basically from the time I was three years old. Um, mm. I was, my attractions were to those, uh, my peers, same age peers, and those attractions grew up as I grew up. And so it, it, it just, it wasn't a surprise to me. It felt really a, very much a core, very central to who I am. And the process of telling other people was really about finding those who had their reactions, either positive or negative, and then could kind of get past them and see me for the same person that they knew before with just different information about who, whom I was attracted to. And and also finding others who were, you know, just frankly homophobic and awful and um, very sexist, and and dealing with the pain of that, which um, w- it hurts anybody who goes through that process. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. So it's also just amazing, like you said, that you were able to work with Dr. Brody. I mean, what a what an amazing opportunity. And it sounds like he was a pioneer in the field as well. Is that right? Well, he, he certainly was a, a rock star very rapidly. I mean, I, I, he was he was teaching us neuroscience. Um, his lectures were on neurosciences and um, in human biology. And I just found it fascinating. And so that was the reason I, that I chose him. But he was really a very, very, very junior person who had been hired by Stanford. And then he just kind of sh- shot from there into the stratosphere um, in, in the field. But the, but the truly amazing thing was that uh, I, I think he was really in a very tiny minority of people whom I, to whom I came out at the, in that era, um, who was just, com- he was just completely fine. I mean, not only was he completely mm-hmm. fine, he was thrilled because he thought, oh, wow, here's an opportunity for somebody to do research who knows something about this community because we need this kind of research. And this was before um, homosexuality was taken out of the DSM. So, you know, I, I was considered mentally ill and, and it was already well known that that was not based on any science. It was based on bias and, 
and very antiquated um, beliefs that were both that were religious and legal precedent and and then um, and then the psychiatric association just packaging that all up and calling it a mental illness. So so it was just it was just a ter- I mean I'll never forget the moment that he said that's fantastic. Oh my gosh, you can do you can you can study this group of people from from the perspective of being an insider. And I'm and I just as an I'll jump ahead, way ahead to just say that it's it's so curious to me um, at this stage of my life when I still I'm 70 we're both 73 well I'll be 73 in a week. <laughs> Indeed 73 already. But yep. um, at 70 at 73 years of age at still doing research that people say to me and I still doing research on LGBTQ people. Well, aren't you biased studying LGBTQ people? And I, and I, and I, my resp- I have a lot of responses to that these days, but one of them is, um, so you're saying that, that nobody who's a parent should ever study children. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, there's just so many groups. No, you no nobody who's a member of any group can study other members of that group. I mean, really, it's not much research could be done really if that mm-hmm. were the case. Absolutely. Silly. Okay, so uh, if I'm recalling correctly, you didn't have a similarly fantastic experience after you left Stanford and you were applying, I believe, for psychiatric residency at Columbia. Can you tell us what happened there? Yes. Well, um, (laughs) one of the one of the biggest opponents of taking um, homosexuality out of the um, DSM for a period of time was Dr. Robert Spitzer. And um, when I was, I, in 1974, I applied to, for psychiatric residency at Columbia. Uh, I wanted to go to, um, I, I thought I really wanted to go to a big city and I'd never been to New York. So I applied for, at Columbia. I applied at Duke um, because Dr. Brody was there and he would, he said, you've got to apply because I, you know, you'd love it here. It really wasn't where I wanted to go and Harvard because Harvard was also a big city. And so my interview at Columbia, um, they assigned me to be interviewed by Dr. Spitzer, who was for most of his life, a, a prominent advocate for reparative therapy to quote unquote, cure homosexuality. But right, just right before that, he had agreed to um, removing homosexuality in part from the DSM through a lot of pressure from a lot of advocacy groups and a lot of other psychiatrists who had had really been investigating the whole topic and thinking about it very carefully and scientifically. Um, so when I went in for my interview, he just hammered me with questions about my sexuality. Now, you might say, I, I, I actually, there was nothing about me walking in the room that spelt, you know, I didn't have a t-shirt that says, I am a lesbian, you, you know, um, on it. I dressed appropriately for the, for the interview. I had a skirt on and I had very long hair and stuff. And, but he just hammered me with questions about my sexuality, which he it got to by virtue of the fact that I'd done the research that I'd done. And so he mm. um, deduced that I had um, an interest in it and probably a personal interest and then, and then asked, asked literally. Um, but I, 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 other than saying, yes, I am a lesbian, I refused to answer his questions because they were very, very homophobic. I mean, he was, they're, they're invasive of my um, questions about my sexual behavior, for instance, and roles, his assumed 
assumptions about roles that um, I and my lover had in our relationships and so on that were very, um, very, very biased and homophobic. And the chair of the department had already told me that I was going to be accepted in the program because I had led these research projects as an undergraduate, which was very rare then. It's very common now because um, all kids who go into these um, very elite schools have a, a lot of accomplishments. But back then it was very rare. So then it turned out that he blocked my admission because uh, I refused to see my lesbianism as a problem. And Dr. Brody actually knew the chair of the department and asked him um, after I got my rejection letter, hey, what happened with Nanette? You, uh, she, heard, she told me you said she was going to be admitted. And they, they said, you know, well, she, she, she just doesn't see her lesbianism as a problem. So I ended up at Harvard, um, <laughs> where I was for the next 11 years. Wow. That's unbelievable. I mean, you could sue them now, right? But <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Wow. <laughs> I, can't, I, don't, I don't know. Who knows? You could try, I'm sure. Yeah. I guess it makes me, it does make me feel grateful, I suppose, that things have changed. Because when you, when you tell the story that way, I am so appalled and heartbroken. And I'm grateful that that I mean, something that explicit, I'm sure people, I know people encounter all kinds of bias and, and microaggressions, but, but to deny your <laughs> admission and, and just be unapologetic about it is really unbelievable. Wow. So you ended up at Harvard. Now it was around this, <laughs> it was around this time that you met Dee, right? So yes. can, should we, t should we take a, a side road and talk about the relationship? Maybe you can both talk about how you met. Sure. Sure. I'll, well, I'll, I'll start because my, um, my path to meeting Dee was a little lo longer than hers to meeting me, um, or at least <laughs> I knew much more about her before, before I met her um, than she did about me. So um, in we met in 1975, the year before I began my residency at Harvard, and um, I moved to Washington, D.C. to do an externship at National Institutes of Health, NIH. And um, I found a place to live in a house with a group of lesbians I'd never met. They, I, I, I had a, fr a friend who was from D.C., and I let, uh, wrote her a letter um, in the U.S. Postal Service and asked if she knew of any place that I might live while I was there, and she found this place for me. And I was ecstatic because I was going to be moving into this sort of lesbian collective household. And when I arrived, I um, drove my little, little VW bug across the country, and when I arrived, Dee was out of town, and my new roommates asked if I'd pick her up at the airport. And I asked them how I would recognize her. Um, now, these were the days before airport security when you could just walk into an airport and wait at the gate for people with signs and balloons and all that sort of stuff. And what they did is they pulled out a record album, that the album of a lesbian singer-songwriter that had a photo on the cover of the local lesbian softball team on it. And they pointed out Dee, who was the team's manager. So it was a little, it, you know, it was about an inch by an inch, um, but that was the person I was supposed to go meet at the airport. So um, I tried to sort of memorize the picture. And when I, when her plane landed from Texas, off walked this woman with frosted 
blonde hair and a dazzling <laughs> smile, and that turned out to be D. <laughs> wow. And the, and the rest, they say, is herstory. Yeah, we, that's right. <laughs> we fell in love, and we've been happily together for 47 years. Mm-hmm. We're the only couple we know of, though, who moved in together before we'd even met. <laughs> <laughs> that and is we, amazing. I know. <laughs> Whenever we could, we legalized our relationship first through domestic partnership and then through marriage. In 2004, we were married an hour after the first same-sex marriage ceremony was performed for Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon at San Francisco City Hall. When the uh, Supreme Court of California annulled these marriages, we married again the following year in Victoria, British Columbia. My goodness. And that one stuck. Is that, that right? <laughs> you, yeah, that one that, stuck for sure. That one stuck. Yes, yeah. exactly. Wow. That's so beautiful. So I have a couple more questions about that. Were, were you supported by family and friends when you announced that you were dating or that you were going to get married? I mean, how did people respond? We didn't have any family members at at the wedding. And and I think they were, in retrospect, I think they were kind of upset about that. Um, But we we did it. We we had an hour to do it. We, yeah. we, we actually, the first, the first one, when, when we got the call that Dell and Phyllis had been married at city hall, we, I had just been playing tennis and D I don't remember what you'd been doing. And, and you told me, and we just went, let's go because they might shut it down. So we no just way. jumped in the car. I had my tennis sweats on. I, di- I didn't have, I only had one um, little pinky ring on. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, we didn't really, I didn't have jewelry even to yeah. like, you know, exchange jewelry that I was already wearing or anything. So we just ran down there to, to do it. That and is then- true. It was very spontaneous. <laughs> hmm. And how long had you been dating at that point and like wanting to get married and had not been able to because it wasn't legal? Well, we'd been we'd been together by then. Um, we'd been together. Twenty nine years. Yeah. Twenty nine. Twenty nine years. <laughs> twenty nine yeah. years. So but but before that, there were other steps along the way. So we were able to register as domestic partners in the 1990s. And so in any way that we could. We tried to legalize our relationship Mm -hmm. and certainly did very complicated wills that took into account the fact that we weren't legally married because Mm -hmm. we couldn't be and stuff. So just it's it was one of the the, I mean, most people, uh, LGBTQ people in partnerships with or without children who wanted to to have a legal relationship that would withstand whatever might be coming at us did paid for the legal services to get ourselves as solidified as possible legally, mm. which is what yeah. we did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Well, you really love each other. That's really beautiful. <laughs> we do. I can, and can I, if I can throw in something personal too, I, I know I told you this, but and my listeners know about my the faith tradition that I grew up in. And I, I told uh, Nanette and Dee on the trip that when I noticed them, you know, holding hands and I thought, oh, they're a couple because some people were there. I was there with a friend on the study trip and just, you know, there were various 
relationships on the trip or some people were just there by themselves. And I thought, oh, there are a couple. And I just noticed how affectionate and joyful your relationship was. And it was so beautiful to see it. And I I really reflected that growing up Mormon and in the Mormon community and, of course, other religious communities, too, that really suppress and kind of push underground same-sex partnerships, how devastating it is for the partners involved and hearing your story and just my heart breaking that you weren't able to get married when you found the love of your life. And then also how it impoverishes that community because they don't know they don't really they can go through their whole lives heterosexual people cisgender people can sometimes go their whole lives not knowing that people they know and love are gay like people they know and love if they're if those partners aren't able to hold hands in public to kiss each other in public to let alone like get married and have a beautiful celebration of their love it just impoverishes everyone and harms those people so very much. And it's kind of like just this tragedy of just below the surface. And my po- I guess my point in saying that is, thank you for living your authentic, beautiful life out loud, like all human beings should have the right to do. For someone who grew up, grew up in the very conservative community, for me, that's still new to me. To be able to see that. And I have people I love very, very much who are LGBTQIA. And to be able to to see you on that, I was going to say the cutting edge, which sounds maybe silly to you living in San Francisco, but in Utah, it is still the cutting edge of, of mm-hmm. people being living their authentic lives out, out loud. So thank mm-hmm. you so much for that thank example. You. Thank you. Thank you very much. Words. Yeah, that's it's it is really kind of you, and we do know that we're very privileged to live in a bubble. But it's always been clear to both of us, I think, the importance of knowing someone in your family constellation, in your friendship constellation, anywhere in your community who is out, because it mm-hmm. makes a difference. It brings it to it brings it to such a human level. And even I remember when, you know, Ellen came out and that started happening on television, that even that was, you know, was something that was uh, really wonderful. And I think an effective way to start encouraging other people to come out. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've always known that, you know, that's such an important piece is to, to be able to be visible. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful and courageous. So Mm -hmm. thank you. So jumping back to your career path, Nanette, I wanted to ask you about um, a really important research project that you did. I'm wondering if you can tell us about the U.S. National Longitudinal Lesbian Family Study. Yes. um, Well, in in 1986, this is a study that I launched. um, And the word longitudinal is in the study title, and it indeed has been longitudinal. It's still going on. And I began the study at a time when lesbian mothers were losing custody of their children because judges believed that growing up with sexual minority parents would be harmful. So they were removing custody from um, uh, lesbians who had been, had conceived children in heterosexual relationships or marriages and they were the parents were divorcing and uh, the mothers were losing custody because uh, it was assumed that 
the, the children would be harmed. So I realized that we really needed data, uh, long, longitudinal data, long-term data, especially because the judges in their eminent wisdom were saying that, uh, yes, there are a couple studies that show that kids who have been raised in uh, lesbian or being raised in lesbian households seem to be doing okay, but they're young and we have no idea how they're going to be when they're 25 and 30 years old. And so since, um, uh, I, I, you know, 25, 30 years, that, that was a long time, but I had a lot of energy cause I was young. So I thought, well, we can do that. <laughs> we'll just start. <laughs> so our study is the largest, longest running investigation of sexual minority parent families in the world. Uh, we still have 92% of the families um, participating after all these years. And in very um, brief summary, I can say that the kids are doing just fine. We've been following them since conception and they're now in their early thirties. And the findings have been a resource for people really all over the world. And they were instrumental in the American Academy of Pediatrics endorsing same-sex marriage. And also they were filed in numerous briefs with the Supreme Court in support of marriage equality. Um, it's, um, I have a fabulous research team. Um, um, it's an international research team. I'm just very, very privileged to be working with just the top, top scholars and I'm so grateful to the, our participants who have stuck with us through thick and thin and are, are still with us today. Amazing. Well, I, I have to throw in another personal comment there. Uh, my listeners will remember that I, I talked on one episode about Prop 8 when we were living in California and we were hearing just so many very loud voices telling us to oppose same-sex marriage. And my husband and I, it, I mean, we're talking about it all the time. And Andy Dunn, our dear friend from Stanford, who's been on the podcast also, I remember him coming over to our house and we had heard from everyone we knew that, you know, the reason that, that same-sex couples couldn't get married is because it was bad for children, right? It, it was destructive to the family. And Andy Dunn, I remember like what I was wearing, where I was sitting. I remember him sitting there in our family room and saying, I just read this study about the children of lesbian couples. And actually it's, it seems like they fare really well. They fare sometimes even better than, you know, children of heterosexual families. And that was the only data point that I heard on the other side and it stuck with me. And I've remembered it ever since. And I've thought, I need to read that study. And so then when I read, that was you. <laughs> really amazing. And so just for one person, it it was slow for my husband and me. My listeners know this. This I've talked about this a lot, um, the process of deconstructing everything that we had been taught prior. But your study made a difference in my life. It was a little seed that got planted. And like I said, it was the only it gave credence and validity to this up opposite side that I wasn't getting exposure to and um, it made a difference. So great. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for yeah. telling me. Thank you, Nanette. Okay. So you're not averse to tackling tough issues because one of the next things I wanted to ask you about was your leading investigations into sexual misconduct by physicians. Yes. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> yes, I can. One of the things I think that's characteristic of the research that I've done is that I, I only tackle the tough topics, especially at the time that I begin the studies. And the more opposition to the project that I want to undertake, that I encounter, the more motivated I become to do it. 
And the higher the walls <laughs> in my way, the more motivated I am to, to carry on. So when I was a young, and I'm also, that means I'm never bored with what I do because there's so many people often trying to stop me from doing what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> when I was a young Harvard professor, I was appointed to lead the National Committee on Women of the American Psychiatric Association. And I was responsible for advocating women's mental health issues nationally in that role. And I soon learned that there were many, many malpractice claims being filed against psychiatrists for sexual misconduct, primarily between male psychiatrists and female patients. And so I spent with my colleagues about two years trying to get the APA to let us investigate the problem through the APA, officially through the APA, gather data about it, so we could do something about it, because you can't ever do anything in an institution like the APA without data. But we were stonewalled. And so we gave them a deadline, and, and they <laughs> still stonewalled us. And so I gathered some Harvard colleagues together, and I led a series of investigations that resulted in over a dozen scientific publications documenting sexual abuse of patients by psychiatrists, by psychiatric residents, and by physicians in other specialties. And ultimately, based on our research, um, in part, the, the American Psychiatric Association, American Medical Association, amended their ethics codes to rule sexual conduct with current or former patients unacceptable. And that was a huge change. It's also a felony in many states now, which is also a huge change. Uh, as you can probably imagine, it still happens, but not as frequently as before. Wow. Amazing. Well, again, I'm just I'm just astounded and so grateful. And a lot of times, I mean, we like I mentioned before, we learn about how bad things used to be and then we think, "Oh, good, it's better." And so often we don't hear the stories of how, you know, the battering ram knocked down the, mm -hmm. you know, the door of the fortress and and I this is why I introduced you both as being heroes because that's often kind of thankless work. You do it and then everyone's like, great. And then it like <laughs> moves on. And they don't realize how hard it is to get those things changed. So kudos and congratulations to you and gratitude to you. Thank you. So one more thing I wanted to ask about is on the home front, you and Dee both volunteered as psychiatrists treating chronically mentally ill people in San Francisco, specifically in the Tenderloin District, which is a part of San Francisco that really struggles with poverty and people with mental health struggles and all kinds of um, difficulties. So I'd love you to say something about that if you can. Yeah, it, it really breaks our hearts to witness the suffering of homeless folks especially knowing that so many suffer from chronic mental illness. I think that not addressing this properly is one of the most heartbreaking failings of our country. As we sort of witnessed uh, this phenomenon in San Francisco and really all over the country, one day it dawned on me that we had unique skills to offer. We connected with a woman who had gone out under the bridges and into the camps to feed and then try to bring people inside to see if she could help them get social services. We started volunteering at a place she created in the Tenderloin, not a clinic, just, just a space. And for the next 13 years until it closed, we evaluated and provided psychiatric medication to anyone who showed up on Tuesday nights. 
to our knowledge, we were the only psychiatrist in San Francisco who were volunteering this way. Wow, that's really beautiful. I mean, I imagine that would have been a really difficult but really moving experience. That's you know, really beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Nanette, for sharing your story. And feel free to jump in as we shift gears. But I'd, I'd like to now start kind of at the beginning with Dee. So I'll do the same thing as I did when I was introducing Nanette. And I'll just read kind of a formal bio. And then I'll have you tell your story. So Diane, known as Dee Mossbacher, MD, PhD, was born January 13, 1949 in Houston, Texas. She is an award-winning filmmaker, lesbian feminist activist, and practicing psychiatrist. She earned a bachelor's degree in psychology from Pitzer College in Claremont, California, a doctorate in social psychology from Union Graduate School, and a medical degree from Baylor College of Medicine. In 1993, she founded Woman Vision, a nonprofit organization to promote equal treatment of all people through the production and use of educational media, including video. Dr. Mossbacher directed and produced nine multiple award-winning documentaries, all focused on homophobia, that received a total of 46 awards from LGBTQ+, Black Latin American, and aging media film festivals, including Best of Show, Grand Jury, and Audience Awards in the U.S., U.K., Australia, Cuba, Mexico, and Italy. Her papers are archived at the Sophia Smith Collection at Smith College. Uh, Again, just astounded, Dee, at, at what you've accomplished so far in your life. And I, I'll throw in here too that I was able to watch one of the films that you made and was deeply moved by that film. And I'm hoping we can talk about it a little bit later on. But let's have you start at the very beginning too and tell us about your family of origin and some relevant details about growing up. Well, as you, as you mentioned, I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. Uh, my parents were Robert and Jane Pennybacker, Mossbacker. My father was an oil producer and my mother a stay-at-home mom. I, I think it's really important, Amy, to acknowledge class, which is such a mm. profound determinant of the opportunities that we get. I came from a privileged background. My family and the Bush family were friends. We, we mm. played football together my dad and me against W and HW. I think we beat them, but that could be a revisionist recollection. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Like you played football against them, like just throwing the football around, like because you lived near no, each other? No, we played or... games against them. Oh my goodness, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. They were they were uh, close friends and uh, particularly the, the dads. Um, huh. and, uh, so, wow. and I was a t- total tomboy when I was a kid. So <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, tell, tell me a little bit. I mean, we're going to know, want to know more about the bushes and I know that comes up later in your life, but maybe we can pause for a second and, and ask you when you came out and how your family responded to that. I imagine if they were friends with the bushes and knowing a little bit about, about your family, they were a very conservative family. Is that right? <laughs> True that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I went to one of the Claremont colleges, Pitzer. When my mother became ill in my junior year, I, I moved home to be near her. 
after mom died, I moved to DC to finish up my degree from Pitzer and to take some pre-med classes. While in DC, I was very active in the anti-war movement. (laughs) And I went to one of the huge demos in Harrisburg. After I got home, dad called and said, I bet you were in Harrisburg demonstrating with those communists and socialists. Well, guilty as charged. (laughs) And then he said, why can't you just become a doctor and leave politics to the men in the family? (gasps) And (laughs) it seems I I had inherited the Mossbacker gene for politics, but definitely not the Republican gene. (laughs) It was... It was a rich time and when many of us thought we were fighting the good fight. But at the same time, I was struggling with my sexual orientation. Everything I had read uh, pathologized and or criminalized homosexuality. Don't forget, Amy, we're, we are talking about the early 70s here. Mm-hmm. One day I saw a n- notice about a pro-abortion speak out. It said there would be a doctor, a lawyer, and a lesbian speaker. Well, I jumped at the chance to see a real-life lesbian. I went to the meeting where I saw three very articulate speakers, but none identified herself as a lesbian. Several months later, I discovered all three speakers were lesbians. And that's all it took. I jumped out of the closet once I realized these were normal, successful people, not at all the women I had been led to believe they would be. Wow. Uh, the, but the most important thing that happened in D.C. was falling in love with Nanette. When she finished med school, we moved to Boston together, she for her psychiatry residency at Harvard, and I to get my Ph.D. in social psychology at the Union Institute. That was really a great time, and I was really happily out while I was there. So did you come out to your family at that time as well, and how did they respond? Well, Dad kind of figured it out on his own. And when I got together with, uh, with Nanette, we had, we had dinner together, and, and that was the start of a lifetime, lifelong uh, relationship that was a really wonderful relationship between Nanette and my father. He, he loved her. And even, even more than that, my grandfather, we, we went to see who we used to, we, we called Pop. Uh, we went to see Pop in New York City, Nanette and I, and uh, he was great. He he was mm-hmm. uh, thrilled that she was a doctor, and from <laughs> when he met her, he called her the doc. So he was really <laughs> happy to know that he was going to have two doctors in the family. So it was really it was really wonderful in that regard. <laughs> that is wonderful. Was that a surprise to you that they responded so well? Yes, it was. And it was, you know, it was as a result of uh, probably a fair amount of Durham and Strong on their point, you know, on their behalf, uh, you know, because, you know, it was, again, we're talking, we're talking in the 70s. So it was, mm-hmm. it was kind of difficult. But dad was always wonderful about, you know, once he accepted my, my being lesbian, lesbian, he was always really wonderful and very supportive. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. So then, let's see, what happened next? You went 
to medical school back in Houston. How was that for yeah. you? Yeah. Well, I went to Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, which was a totally different experience. I knew medical school would be a challenge because of my difficulty concentrating. So I had decided to retreat to the closet as I did my time at this conservative school. But I couldn't stay there, especially when my friend Gary found a message on his locker saying, kill the queers. We faced obvious as well as more subtle signs of homophobia in what we were subjected to and taught. So I decided to act. In 1980, I made a slide tape presentation called Closets Are Health Hazards, gay and lesbian physicians come out that could be used in schools all over the country by anyone wanting to educate about homophobia. Through the distribution of this slideshow, the efficacy of educating about homophobia without having to travel to each school stayed with me until I began to make videos. The magic of connecting an audience with LGBTQ people even in slides or on film, serve two purposes. One, to give courage and community to closeted individuals, and two, to eliminate stereotypes harbored by straight people. My first video, it's my first video itself, was filmed at the Fifth Lesbian Physician Conference in 1989 with my friend Joan Byron, who had helped make closets. So you, I mean, I'm seeing some ways that you are similar to each other and and probably connect so well, right? What Nanette (laughs) talked about, like, if there's a, if someone says you can't do something, it makes her want to do it even more. And so (laughs) I'm seeing that and I'm I'm just reflecting that, that some might have retreated in, in that circumstance at Baylor in Texas and then having that horrible, horrible homophobic, I guess, threat, really. I mean, that's that's just violent and awful. I might be really scared to come out of the closet and to be vocal. And I just so admire your courage. Did you have any like doubts about that? Or were you just galvanized? I was just it? galvanized. I was mm-hmm. really pissed off, actually. Yeah. I was yeah. just angry. And I just, I had to do something about it. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Okay, so then after you, so then did you go to Harvard after that? Do you remind me what the, the yeah, progression I, was? Yeah, I after I completed my psychiatric uh, training at Cambridge Hospital, which was one of the Harvard hospitals. Okay, and then after that, you and you were with Nanette, and then you mm-hmm. moved to San Francisco. Absolutely. And so, tell me about that because I I believe that was in the eighties, which was when the AIDS epidemic was exactly Is that right? right. Exactly right. I became medical director for mental health um, of Sam of mental health for San Mateo County, which is, for those who don't know, is the county just south of San Francisco, and there I treated people with severe mental illness. I also raised funds for Shanti Project, the Shanti Project, which provided compassionate care to the dying, particularly those with AIDS. In the early 90s, I began to take on Karl Rove and the Republican Party. Rove was moving the party ever rightward 
and had decided that promoting fear about LGBTQ people would be just such a fantastic fundraising tool. Mm. So as daughter of President Bush's Commerce Secretary, I joined the battle against the Republican Party. So your your dad was repeat that D. What was it? What was, was the, your dad's job at the time? He was the Commerce Secretary, Bush's okay. Secretary of Commerce in Bush's cabinet. I Correct. mean, like working Correct. for President Bush, the yes. sitting president. Correct. And as yeah. as I'd said earlier, they were they were very close friends, and he had dad had supported uh, President Bush in all of his, his campaigns, President H.W. Bush in all of his, his campaigns. Well, tell us about this. You're, you're, t- you're taking on the Republican Party as your dad is, you know, in the, the Bush part of the Bush administration. Can you tell us some more about that, Dee? Correct. Yeah. In, in May of 92, I was invited to be the first alum to give the commencement address at my alma mater, Pitzer College, which, as I said earlier, was one of the Claremont Colleges. Mm -hmm. Coincidentally, or not, (laughs) my dad was the commencement speaker right across the street at what was then called Claremont Men's College. I opened my address with, my father and I had breakfast this morning, and we took a look at each other's speeches. He could have given mine, but he's not a lesbian. I could have given his, but I'm not a Republican. <laughs> Dad and I, we we both laughed about the press coverage of my remarks, but our relationship got very tense as the election approached. And I continued to confront the Republican campaign as it egregiously dis- distorted the concept of, quote, family values. The intra-family atmosphere became even more turbulent when I was the subject of a Washington Post feature labeling me, quote, the lesbian in the GOP family. Mm. I was also the only Democrat in the Mossbacker family. That sounds really difficult. (laughs) I mean, and, and your dad, meanwhile, like he's, He's raising funds for President Bush's re-election campaign. And at, in the meantime, you're becoming a spokesperson for LGBTQ plus civil rights, right? Correct. I mean, yeah, that would cause tremendous strain, I would imagine. Yeah, it was it was a very it was actually a very difficult time. My family was supposed to come out and uh, celebrate Thanksgiving with us uh, right after the election and that that didn't happen <laughs> that Aww. year you know it's you know it it was that that part of our relationship was always a, a big challenge were you able to stay close with your dad in other ways i mean i picture you being young and playing football with him and mm-hmm. um close to him when you were young but were you able to stay close in some ways despite your political differences? Yes, kind of absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, he was he was a wonderful father. I mean, he he really was was a mensch in that regard. But we just, you know, had this disagreement about um, politics and, you know, a couple of other things that we sort of just agreed to disagree. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, we were able to 
able to stay close. Mm. Well, to tell you the truth, I mean, of course, it would have been wonderful for you to be able to, you know, soften his heart. And then he has a a big conversion experience to like see (laughs) things the way, you know, we had, you would hope and we would hope. But I also think it's really beautiful that you were able to stay close because I see, especially right now in, you know, how polarized our country is and within family relationships and friend relationships, I see people who are just unwilling to speak to each other because of their political differences. And I personally think it's really inspiring that you were both willing to maintain your relationship and, and put those differences to the side so you could love each other still. Well, you know, Amy, it was a different time in that regard too. And I, Mm. I feel very lucky that I, we're not going, dad and I aren't going through this today. You know, I used to, I, I, I feel like the Republicans of that era you know, of the 80s, 90s, et cetera, well, into the maybe mid-2000s, were opponents. And we could actually talk to them. I mean, we could argue with them and, Mm. you know, put we could take turns putting our, you know, putting our arguments forth. Um, Today, they're enemies. They're, they're not opponents. And, and we don't listen to each other. I mean, I, you know, I, I think, you know, none of us listen to each other in the way that I think used to, it used to be. And you can, you know, it's very clear in the Congress that that's the case. You know, there's no listening to each other anymore. And so I, this is, this is a particularly challenging time in that regard. Mm Mm-hmm. I will say too, just for listeners, I do want to remind listeners because of what I just said that, I mean, D, your dad was respectful to you, right? I mean, he, yes. you came out to him. He loved your partner, your wife. He was, he was a safe person for you. I mean, and it's one thing to have political differences. It's another to come out to someone if you are LGBTQ and and come out to someone and and have them say I don't support you. They can create an unsafe environment where it wouldn't be probably the right approach to say oh we'll just respect each other's differences. I mm-hmm. accept your mm-hmm. disavowal of my way of life or right right that wouldn't be a healthy relationship. Ab- absolutely not. And that's really one of the cornerstones or one of the motivators for my getting into making documentary films about homophobia. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I realized very, very clearly that not everybody had the experience, has had the experience that, that I have. And I'm really lucky in that regard. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons I've, I've made the films that I've made. Well, please tell us more about that. I'd love you to talk about specifically a woman vision and and the documentaries that you've made. Sure, sure. Um, as the nineties continued, our opponents developed crasser but also more sophisticated tools to battle our attempts to obtain LGBTQ rights in various states around the country. Gay bashing videos were developed and distributed in states where LGBTQ measures were on the ballot. A widely distributed video called Gay Rights Special Rights sought to drive a wedge between the African-American and LGBTQ communities by alleging that we wanted, quote, special rights, not civil rights. 
The Gay Agenda video claimed that we could and should be converted uh, from homosexuals to heterosexuals. In response to those videos, I founded Woman Vision, a nonprofit with the goal of making educational videos about the LGBTQ community. I took a different approach. I, I didn't want to use the fear-mongering methods of the Christian right. As a psychiatrist, I had learned to interview and listen well, skills that are highly desirable for both psychiatry and filmmaking. I had seen the possibilities of changing minds and hearts through education delivered at a very emotional level. My goal with these films was to model transformation. That is to show how Christian parents whose religion and cultures had taught them to be homophobic came to a new understanding of this kind of prejudice as they synthesized the fact of having a gay child of their own. Straight from the Heart, the first film was nominated for an Academy Award in 1995. All God's Children and De Colores followed and became the Unlearning Homophobia series. So in my next series of films, I began to examine discrimination in other parts of our culture. When, when I was a kid, I loved sports, as I said, as I alluded to in terms of playing football. And I played a lot of sports as a kid. And um, when I grew up, I continued to follow women's basketball, women's college basketball. And as an adult, I, you know, I, as I followed it, I was really distressed that I never heard of a single coach or player who was out. Mm. I made Out for a Change, the first ever film on homophobia in sports in 1994. Training Rules examined homophobia in women's sports through the prism of Penn State University, which allowed its women's basketball coach, Rini Portland, to bully lesbian players throughout her 27-year tenure at the university. Mm. Portland was forced to retire as a result of the film. I was the first documentarian to examine the toxic environment in Penn State's athletic department, which blew apart two years later over the Sandusky case. I'm just astounded and just so inspired to know about the work that you were doing. Again, that doesn't, sometimes you don't see it in the, the front page and it's not a name you know, And but those are the, the actions that actually move the needle. It's just so inspiring. I also wanted to add something about the bushes related to straight from the heart, if I may, Please. a story that that um, oh, yeah. that I, I think is a pretty special one. There was a birthday some sometime in the late nineties or early two thousands of D's that her father forgot. And he never forgot oh. birthdays. Actually, he had assistants who were supposed to remind him. <laughs> but he, but and that's one of the reasons that he didn't forget. But somehow that chain didn't happen. And so he asked Dee what how he could possibly make it up to her. And so she said, "Please show straight from the heart to the bushes." Oh, um, 
Now, now, actually, one of the things that he did arrange, actually, after Straight from the Heart came out, he arranged for a joint session for it to be shown to a joint session of Congress, which was really incredible. So anyone who wanted to come from both from in, in Congress attended. And so so he took the he he thought, well, he couldn't say no to this because he missed her birthday. So he sat down with them and um, and asked them if they, they would watch the film. And we have still, which the, the the Smithsonian wants from us, and we are, at some point when we go to Washington, we'll take them. We have the card that Barbara Bush and that H.W. Bush each wrote to Dee's dad saying how much the film moved them and that they both cried when they watched it. And he said that the film made him want to be a better, more tolerant person. So... That's amazing. Um, yeah. Wow. That yeah. is incredible. That was Steve. that was one of the best birthday presents I ever got, <laughs> if not the best. Yeah. Well, good for you for being quick on your feet and thinking to ask for something so impactful. I have to say I I watched Straight from the Heart as well and I you said it came out in 1995, I think, right? That's the year I graduated from high school. And there was a Mormon family as as you well know, D, you'll yes, remember them in my... Yes, of course. Oh, how could, how, how could I forget them? Yeah. I mean, it was so moving, and I thought, I so wish that I had seen that movie and that people I knew in my community had seen that movie. A Mormon family from Idaho who had a gay son. Is that right? Yes. And yeah, I who, mean... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, please go ahead. Tell us a little bit. Who, who had HIV and... They cared for him as he was dying, and they talked about, you know, what other people said about them and thought about them, and, um, you know, it was it was a very difficult, difficult experience, and they were they were so moving talking about it and how in, in such adverse circumstances they had taken their son in and and cared for him lovely, lovingly until he died. Mm-hmm. Just hearing how their hearts had changed once yes. it was their son, yes, right? That was gay. Absolutely. I mean, it was so moving, and that was the the whole documentary is you know different versions of that story, right? People really discovering their prejudices and the ways that they had been taught, and then realizing like this isn't this isn't right, this isn't true, and opening their hearts. I really recommend listeners to look it up. Again, it's called Straight from the Heart, All God's Children. Is that right, Dee? Is that the right title? Straight from the Heart was the first one that I did. And its focus is the white church-going audience. The um, All God's Children was the next one. And that that the target audience for that was African-American or Black church-going audiences. And the third one is De Colores, and it focuses on Latino, Latina church-going audiences mm-hmm. uh, and the Catholic Church. And it became a series, and we, you know, as I said, they've been used all over the country. And if anybody wants to watch them or look them up, they're on, they can be gotten to from the website womanvision.org. Mm-hmm. That's how I found them. Easy to find <laughs> and and wonderful. Just highly recommended. Thank you. Yeah. I want to ask you quickly about one more highlight for me, learning that you were 
on the 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 mall in Washington D.C. and along with Nancy Pelosi and HIV/AIDS activist Mary Fisher, you read names of people who had died from AIDS when the memorial quilt was laid out on the mall. Is that right, Dee? How did yes, that it was one of out? the most moving experiences just to to to, to be there. And to see the quilt laid out in in that way, I mean, uh, God, it was it was, you know, really terribly sad, but also really beautiful mm. um, to see people recognized in that way. I mean, it was, I guess, in a way, like our Vietnam War memorial, you know, to to acknowledge some of the people who had died of AIDS, and many of whom had f- actually fought to get um, recognition for the illness and, and fought to get treatment for the illness. Yeah. What, what a, a, an honor and kind of a once in a lifetime experience. Absolutely. But also terribly sad, like you said. Okay. One last question for both of you to answer is another, (laughs) yet another thing that, that kind of trickled down and impacted my life. And then when I met you, I thought, those two are behind that too. I can't believe it. <laughs> In November 2016, after Trump was elected, there was an article that was going viral where psychiatrists were calling for Trump to be evaluated because it was clear that he had some sort of diagnosable psychiatric condition that he wasn't fit to be president, right? That was going viral. Everybody was talking about it. You two had a hand in that, so I want you to tell that story too. <laughs> well, Absolutely. Um, I'll, uh, I'll just say a few words, and Deacon <laughs> finish it up, wrap it up. But a colleague of ours, um, whom we had been good friends of with since we were at Harvard, called shortly after the election and said, "Do you want to co-author a letter to President Obama, calling for an immediate neuropsychiatric evaluation of Donald Trump?" and we said we're we're there, and so we wrote the letter and sent it off. Nothing happened. Uh, short shortly afterwards, um, a prominent journalist for a major publication contacted D and me and said, "Would you go on record and talk about your thoughts as psychiatrists about the incoming president?" And we said, "Well, we, actually, we have this letter that our colleague and the two of us co-authored." And would you like to see that letter? And so we got that to her. She passed it off to somebody at Huffington Post who published it. And that's how it went viral. And just we we heard about it from everywhere. And then people were trying to get us to speak, speak, speak about it. But what it did was it, it spawned a movement of mental health professionals who were came forward to speak out about his psychopathology. But also because it, so many people saw it, among those people uh, were Gloria Steinem and Robin Morgan, who became involved in guiding us about how to direct that letter and specifically referring back to things that had happened in the Nixon administration and the concerns that Nixon needed to be contained as he was being ushered out of office, strongly urged us to get our letter to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And Dee and I all of a sudden realized that we had a way of potentially doing that. And so we won't ever say how we did, but we managed to do it. And then Dee, you can tell 
wrap the rest of the story. <laughs> yeah, just parenthetically, we were kind of blown away when we, our neighbors, who who we're crazy about, uh, had been traveling in India at the time, and they saw it in the on the front page our letter of a news article in a small town in India, which oh, really blew us away. Yeah. Um, actually, we we also were were very humbled by the fact that Gloria Steinem read part of our letter at the Women's March in D.C. after Trump was being inaugurated. And we also co-authored a chapter in the New York Times bestselling book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. Our chapter was about, among other things, invoking the 25th Amendment to remove the dangerous president, you know, Mm -hmm. It who shall remain happened. nameless from here yeah, on out from right. office. I know. <laughs> oh, I wish. Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, just just amazing. I mean, as, as we wrap up, I just, again, and listeners now will see why I introduced you in the way that I did. But I again, I just want to tell you how grateful I am for all of your work. You inspire me to be a better and busier person because I don't know how you fit in everything you've done, but... But boy, am I grateful that people like you exist. And I'm so grateful to have met you. I, I also have to mention, too, this episode airs on the anniversary of the Stonewall riots. And I just and also on Nanette's birthday. Is that right, Nanette? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, I was born and then the Stonewall riots happened on my birthday 20 years later. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, I, as we close, could I get you to say a word about the Stonewall riots? Do you remember uh, those happening and how you felt when it happened? I personally, I was actually in at Stanford's overseas program in Vienna, so I heard about it there. But I was just thrilled that members of our community were fighting back when the police had a long history of going in and arresting them and, and assaulting them and, and then publishing their names and ha- having them lose their jobs and their life, you know, their livelihoods and everything and family exposure. And so finally they were fighting back and that, that this, this, they were stopping this kind of abusive behavior. And so I felt hopeful about our future. Mm, beautiful. I was at Pitzer at the time, and and I wasn't I wasn't really out yet. I sort of hadn't even completely allowed myself to you know to accept my sexual orientation. So, not so much that. I mean, I do remember that time because those years were the years that in which uh, Martin Luther King was murdered and. Bobby Kennedy was murdered. So it was a very tempestuous time. And I was sort of more focused at that point on the anti-war movement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, also incredibly important. Well, thank you. This wraps up our month on Pride-themed episodes. And I have learned so much. And and again, I'm so grateful to you, Nanette Gartrell and Dee Mossbacher. It's just been a real honor to interview today. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for having us.
Before we go, I'd like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And I'm excited to continue the conversation on activism next week with two contributors who will discuss the ways that they have advocated for women's rights and specifically for women's reproductive rights. Anyone who has ever felt that they wanted to make a difference in the world but didn't know how to take their personal convictions into the realm of social activism will want to tune into this episode. So make sure you join us next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 